Hey everybody, thanks for checking out this episode of My First Sketch at MyFirstSketch.com. I'm Josh Hyam. As always, feel free to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or on SoundCloud to get it automatically. You can catch the show on the Stitcher app as well. Like the podcast on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MyFirstSketch. Email me at Josh at MyFirstSketch.com. Follow me on Twitter at MyFirstSketch. It came to my attention that the podcast wasn't listed on Google Play. So that's been rectified. So after more than two years of the show, you can now subscribe through Google Play as well if you're an Android person. Today's guest is Alan McRae, currently the artistic director at the People's Improv Theater in New York City. He's gearing up for the final days of submissions for NYC Sketchfest 2018, which is presented by True TV and The Village Voice. His sketch is called Everybody Loves Moses. Alan plays the roles of God and Joshua, and I play Moses and give any visual information you need to know. So let's go to the sketch. Everybody loves Moses. Moses, the Bible guy, is sitting in his tent talking to God. God is represented by voice only, kind of like a telephone. Moses is very bored and antsy. So I said, well, Adam, I'm sorry you find the Garden of Eden so boring. It must really suck to live in paradise. And he was like, but there's nothing to do. So I'm like, what do you mean there's nothing to do? What about Eve? I made her naked for a reason, Adam. Think about it. And he said something about them being in a fight. So I'm like, look at him. I'm sorry I'm kind of busy right now, okay? I mean, I invented fish today. Yeah, that's right. I invented an entirely new species today. It swims in the water. That's where it lives. Did you invent something today? Well, no. You mean you didn't invent an entire new creature on the earth? Which, by the way, I also invented. Oh, yeah. So he just said whatever and kind of sold off. Yeah, awesome. Hey, hey God, I have to. Now, what were we talking about before, Moses? <sighs> You were telling me about how you decided to make the trees green. Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I tried red and purple and a couple other colors, and I just kept coming back to green. Green was the money color, so that's what I went with, and it was brilliant, of course. Yeah, brilliant. You know, I almost made them blue, but then all the trees would be weeping willows. Yeah. Get it? Weeping willows, because they're blue. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's really funny. (laughs) Hey, uh, that's my door. I got to go, God. Oh, oh, okay. Um, Yeah, sure, I suppose. Plus, I have to get back to writing your book. I'm totally swamped here. Sorry it's taking such a long time. I've been kind of distracted. Oh, that's cool. Hey, if you want to use that blue trees joke, you know, go ahead. (laughs) Okay, God, maybe I will. Okay, bye then. Okay, talk to you later. Yeah, I'll see you around. You too. Take her easy then. Sure thing. Hey, don't don't uh don't print any false idols or anything. <laughs> God, I have to. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> Phone hangs up. Jesus Christ. Moses gets back to work. After a few moments, there's a knock on the door. Jeez, come in. Joshua comes in. He's Moses' right hand. Ma- right-hand dude and kind of a coolie what's up mo oh oh hey joshua sorry about that i thought you were somebody else never mind no don't worry about it hey was that god i just heard you talking to yeah man that guy calls you all the time huh i know right he calls like 50 times a day oh man that sucks huh the thing is it used to be cool back in the day he would just call me up and give me orders like Lead your people out of slavery, Moses, or go paint blood on the door, Moses. Uh, watch out for the falling frogs. But now he just calls me about whatever. Like the other day, he wanted my advice on what color to make polar bears. I was like, do you see any snow around here or bears? We're in the middle of a fracking desert. I don't know what to do. No, well, whatever you do, just be careful. You know how sensitive he is. I know. You remember how mad he was when you invite, got, forgot to invite him to your Halloween party? How was I supposed to know he spent all week on, a, on his meatloaf costume? Fair enough, but I still have boil marks from that time you forgot his birthday. Okay, I got it. A man can only have so many firstborn sons, Moses. That's, that's all I'm saying. Okay, Joshua, 
What do you want me to do about it? Do about what, Moses? Oh, oh, hey there, God. God's here. I gotta go. Good luck, Moses. Thanks. Good luck with uh, with what, Moses? Nothing, God. What do you want? No, nothing. Just saying what you're up to this weekend. Well, the main wife and I are going up to Babylon for the weekend. See the garden, have our way with some slaves. Why? Oh, nothing. I just didn't have anything to do. I thought we could hang out or something. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I would invite you along, but, you know, third wheel and all. Wouldn't want to make you feel weird. Yeah, yeah, that's cool, you know. Hope the weather's okay. Be a shame if it rained flaming sulfur or something. Okay, that's it, God. We need to talk. Talk, talk? <laughs> what do you want to talk about, Moses? <laughs> Look, first of all, I just want to say I really appreciate you leading us out of slavery and all that. Well, you know, I mean. <laughs> and thanks again for the earth. It's really nice, especially water. That was a great idea. I guess I was on a roll that day. You See, I had this concept of wet, but nothing to really... It's just that I'm pretty busy with leading the people of Israel and the Bible and all that, and I was just thinking that I might need some time for myself, if you know what I'm saying. I see. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, I get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you think I'm boring. Is that it? No, it's not that. I really do just need some time to myself. Oh, okay. Well, that's no problem. Then I can thin the ranks out for you a little bit. Let's see. How do I turn on this flood again? Which one of those knobs is it? Wait, that's not what I meant. Please don't kill everyone. Oh, I see. <clears throat> I see. I see how it is. I get it. I I guess what you meant to say is that you need time to yourself with everyone but God. That's not how it is. It's me, not you, God. It's just that it seems like you are everywhere. You know, like you're always watching. I was just wondering if you could talk to one of your other prophets for a while. That's all. I suppose I'll have to, considering you hate me and all. Come on, God. You're missing the point. No, I'm not. What kind of omnipotent super being would I be if I couldn't understand a point? That's great, God. You sure? We're still buds, right? Uh, Of course we are, Moses. You know, I chose you guys for a reason. Hey, Moses, uh, I just started flaming uh, hail out here. Just FYI. God? What? Maybe it was Buddha. Okay, it was me. Oh, God. So what are you up to tonight? And blackout. Hey, Alan. Hey, what's happening? So tell me about this sketch. Where did this idea come from? Oh, man. So I I think that I actually wrote the first draft of this because this is the second draft. I think I wrote the first draft of this when I was in college. So it probably would have been 2001 or 2002. Um, And I had a friend. Honestly, this was based on somebody I knew uh, (laughs) who would call me a lot. And I think we've all had those sort of moments, especially in college where you're sort of trying to figure it out. And I've definitely been this person too. So it wasn't just somebody else, but, uh, who would call me all the time. And I used to, when I was a kid, I would listen to those Bill Cosby stand-up tapes a lot. And this is definitely sort of a riff on the, um, uh, the Noah, uh, thing he used yeah. to do. So this was definitely sort of a uh, riff on this that, and I think when you're, especially a young writer, you you definitely tend to emulate the people you listen to. You know, unfortunately, Bill Cosby turned out to be somebody who we shouldn't want to emulate. But in that case, that's that's where I came from. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the fall of Bill Cosby is just like staggering, and yeah, like, it wasn't great. Awful on every level, like. And I think, you know, it's one, it's one of those things where you just like, this guy is such an, an awful scumbag who deserves nothing but bad things in his life. And yet, I think I probably wore out my Bill Cosby tapes growing up. And it's really, you know, that was a really hard one, I have to say. Oh, but, you know. oh absolutely. Like, yeah. uh, I remember my parents had the records and I love that Noah track. Yeah. Like, Cosby show is always on. And yeah, like, just, he was one of those guys that because he's from Philadelphia, like there's like, oh, right, there right. was this like a bit like hero bit to him. And, like, the fact that he was an actual, like, education doctor, like, he actually got, like, that wasn't an honorary thing and, like, all this stuff. And then just to find out that for the last 30 years, he's just been this monster. 
Yeah, that was like on top of everything. That was probably the toughest one to square for me because the rest, you know, a lot of the other people who came out as being super high level scumbags, you were like, yeah, I can see that. But with Cosby, he just presented himself so much as as somebody to be emulated and somebody who, you know, the Cosby show was basically aspirational. And, you know, yeah, yeah, it's, you know, I did for, you know, he's in jail now. Or actually, I don't, is he in jail now? I, I, I know he I got convicted. I don't know if he's in jail. I and mean, they don't put rich people. I don't in jail. think he's reported to. Okay. Yeah, they, they don't. They tend not to put I rich think, people in jail. I think he's still holed up a couple miles away from me. Because I know where his house. Like, because uh, I live like legitimately like a mile and a half from his house, and like it's this big thing of like you know that that's his property. Yeah. Like, good. I'm glad. I'm glad that's not the case. He's he's stuck there. <laughs> Although I live in, I live in New York, so it's not like I live. I don't live close to scumbags as well. You have plenty of monsters around you, too. Uh, but yeah, you know, this, this was sort of uh, one of, I think this is maybe the third or fourth sketch I ever wrote. Um, you know, this is, you know, I wrote some stuff. I grew up going to summer camp and you play these sort of weird, like, sketchy imagination games to do like air, air band and stuff like that. So that was sort of sketch. And then I think my first sketch I actually ever wrote was uh, for my high school talent show where I was in a band with a okay. plant and it was sort of a solo sketch thing. Um, but this was my first, the, I think it was the second sketch I wrote for my, my college sketch group. Okay. So you had a, okay. So that's like the real impetus of writing was that you got into a college sketch group. Yeah. Well, I started it actually. Um, oh, okay. oh, yeah, I started it. I started, I don't think it's around anymore, but I started with my friend Chris and we just, you know, I was, went to theater school and sort of realized that, I was better at comedy, but, you know, I was in school for writing and directing and wanted to do a sketch thing. So he and I started it and got some people involved. And I wrote this one and another religious based sketch because as a writer, as I teach writing now, so as a teacher, I know that making fun of religion is the first thing that most writers do, especially sketch writers. <laughs> I, 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 I don't write about religion anymore because it's sort of what else can you say? But I think my first two sketches were both one was making fun of uh, Moses and the other one was about the Ark of the Covenant, which was actually more of an Indiana Jones thing. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think Indiana Jones is, makes the Ark of the Covenant way more than more famous than the Bible did. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I doubt I'd pro- I would know what the Ark of the Covenant was <laughs> without Indiana Jones. All right, so let's let's go all the way back. What was your first memory of comedy? Um, gosh, my first memory, um, I, <laughs> I, uh, or maybe I, even I, like the brightest memory, or like you know the yeah. The most- I I think it was listening to. I think it was in, I was in fourth grade. Um, I we had a record player in my class. Um, and I used to listen to, uh, there were money, there were these old Monty Python, um, records and mm-hmm. they had one. And I would listen to that. And then I think that sort of going out of that and my mom was a huge Anglophile. So, um, on the public, uh, the public TV channel where I grew up in, in Boston, um, they would show Monty Python and there's a show called Are You Being Served, which is sort of this very campy British sitcom. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I would watch I, re- I remember that from my PBS days. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think really when I, I bought 100 percent into sketches when I was a latchkey kid. So when I would get home, uh, Comedy Central would always play um, an hour of, com- of of Saturday Night Live and then uh, kids in the hall right afterwards and i think i watched that every day for three straight years more or less uh since you bring it up uh i ask everybody who their favorite snl cast member is so who is yours um growing up it was farley uh now it's it's will ferrell will ferrell i think is as as good a comedian as we will ever have um, and his his run was probably I, it would be difficult for me to to say that anybody was better than Farrell on SNL at this point. OK, um, yeah, with but, you know, growing up a fat kid, I was definitely a Farley guy. <laughs> was that like it was like, yeah, like you related to Farley? Uh, I think so. I love Tommy Boy. Um, I just I think that uh, his stuff, the the falling over and the sort of good naturedness of it, because I. I don't think I really liked mean natured comedy until I got a little bit older. And I think I, you know, I really sort of bought into the fact that his, his comedy was always had something positive about it. 
um, even when they were making fun of people. Because he was always the butt of the joke, but he was so, he was so joyful that you didn't you kind of didn't mind it. And it's it sucks to go back and you know you hear about stuff now like him doing the the Chip and Dale's sketch where he's you know he was so upset about that and how that that was part of the reason that he went back to drinking and all this stuff. And you're like, oh god, this poor dude. <laughs> but he was you know at the time he was my guy. Yeah, a couple. It's probably been like ten years or so now, but like. Uh, they wrote an oral history of Chris oh, yeah. Farley, like where they interviewed all his friends. And reading that, it's very sobering. Like, yeah. oh, this this guy wanted so much to be loved, and like he replaced that with substances and just prostitutes and all this off like other stuff. Yeah, I think I think with a, with with comedians, especially, you know, it's it's something where we do this because we're trying to fill a hole in ourselves to some degree. And some some people, it's not a not a big gaping hole, but for Farley, it was it consumed him, and it's sad. He was one of the greats. Yeah, that was a a really rough uh, month for me that when he died because my my grandmother had passed away like the week be- before. And then seeing on TV that Chris Farley was gone too, I was just like, "Oh, okay." Yeah, that's. And I, you know, I, th- I think that Hartman's probably hit me a little bit harder because it was not so unexpected with Farley. Absolutely, you were just, and by yeah. that point, I was old enough to be like, "Oh, I, you know, I've seen him. I've seen him recently enough that I knew that it was it was probably spiraling a little bit." With with Hartman, it was just he had so much more in him. Whereas with Farley, you could sort of see it. You could see the bottom coming to some degree. Yeah, because like he he had like Farley had hosted Saturday Night Live like a month and a half prior, and he looked yeah. so like disheveled and so like unhealthy because yeah. he'd always he'd always been a big guy, but he always had that sort of weird athleticism to him. Like he was and he, sweaty and like just like profusely sweaty and <laughs> the entire time and. Uh. Yeah, don't go back and watch that. People listening to this, it's it's not it's not a fun watch. The, yeah, um, and and when you hear like, because in the monologue of the episode, Chris Rock shows up, yeah. and said that he's been in the building all week as a substitute in case something went wrong. That's <laughs> disturbing. That's, that's a very grim. Uh, they yeah. had to plan ahead like that. That's that's so sad. But like you know, with, with Hartman, you know, because we just there was just the anniversary of his death recently, and it's one of those things where you go and you yeah, look back years. at Hartman, and you're like, this dude would have won an Oscar at this point. Like he would have he would have been Bob Odenkirk, but better. You know, it's yeah. it's that's just so so much talent being wasted. Yeah, he like Phil Hartman hit me really hard too, yeah. and because I I was right as I was starting to watch SNL. Uh, I was about like 12 or 13 mm-hmm. and uh, to have two memorial shows. Oh yeah. That was, that was that. That was really like cool. best ofs right away. And then uh, the news radio where right. they hit the episode where he dies. Like that, that tribute episode is just <laughs> like, you don't want to say that a tribute episode's perfect, right. but it's so good. Yeah, they they did it, and then after that, it just fell completely off a cliff because John Lovitz, as as funny as John Lovitz has been in his career, is not a replacement for Phil Hartman. Yeah, it's just became such an odd character, yeah. and be, like yeah, the, the show got weird. And I haven't thought about radio okay. in a while. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I had the DVD around here somewhere. I like it came up with another friend of mine uh, a few weeks ago, and I was like, I need to go back and rewatch and. I'll get to it shortly. And then that's where Joe Rogan uh, came from too, right? Now that we have, now we have the whole Joe, we have we have the whole Joe Rogan experience to, to thank News Radio for. So thank you, News Radio, for bringing <laughs> bringing the the broiest bro of all into our lives. <laughs> when it could have been the dude that uh, uh hosted Where in the World's Come from San Diego. Yeah, that's right. It could have been so sad. Oh well, and Andy Dick, who has, has, has many other problems. <laughs> So you're going to college for writing and directing your uh, theater school. Mm-hmm. Where's this that you're going? I went to Ithaca College. Okay. It's in upstate New York. Okay. Um, so why start a sketch comedy group on campus? Like I always tell people that I'm super jealous of people that had sketch comedy in, in college. Yeah. Because it was something I would have loved to do. Yeah. So why do you start it? I think the sort of, I mean, I always loved sketch comedy and it was always something that I think was in the back of my brain. I wrote, I had a playwriting class and I, in this, I think was my 
sophomore year, my end of my sophomore year, and I wrote uh, the final project was to write a play, and I wrote it in the 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 writing teacher who was this really old guy. He was probably probably pushing 80 when he was teaching me, he sat me down. He's a really nice guy. And he's like, Hey, this, this play is not a play. And I was like, I, I don't understand. And he's like, this is, a, this is 60 pages of sketch comedy and sort of broke it down to me that what the way that my brain worked was not necessarily narrative. And you know, there, those, you get those words a little bit later on. Like, you know, I took UCB classes when I first got out of college and sort of the idea of game and the idea and how do you create something that's closed and closed and build things around relationship. And he, you know, sort of pointed out that my, my brain didn't really work in a narrative fashion, a plot. How do you go from point A to point B with anticlimax and all that stuff? So after that point, I kind of, stopped my I think you know it took me a little while to really reevaluate um but I sort of stopped thinking of myself as a theater person and started thinking of myself more as a as a sketch comedy person and you know the the idea of creating short little things in my directing projects you know I directed a play called my senior thesis was a play called The Bald Soprano, which is this absurdist play by a guy named Eugene Ionesco. And a lot of it's very segmented and built around the idea of closed, you know, enclosed loops and stuff like that as well. So I think I just naturally was inclined to writing that kind of stuff more than more than uh, the narrative stuff. Uh, how do you go about the process of creating a sketch comedy group? Do you just put up flyers and people show up and... I mean, in college, I just asked people. I just, I was, because I was in the theater department, I just knew writers. Sure, you, had a, you had an outside, inside track to people that you would want. Right. And we, 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 we performed, we performed once at the actual college itself um, in, in one of the theaters. And we also put on a, um, a version, of, a live version of Ruth Red Nose Reindeer because we were in college and we thought that was, that would be fun. Um, and then the, the last show we did was actually at one of our friends' houses, and we just did it during the middle of the party. So everybody was very receptive, we will say. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just it was more just me saying, you know, it was just us being like, hey, this would be fun. And then I moved to New York, and um, this was, you know, I moved to New York in 2004. So this was pre-internet being as available. You know, we had the internet, but it wasn't sort of, the way that people have it now where opportunities are posted, right? There are so many opportunities. It was more me going in there and I took some classes at UCB. I'm not really, I did the improv thing, but I'm not really an improviser. My brain doesn't really work that way. So, you know, I did some sketch, but it wasn't really till I moved back to Boston that I really committed to it. Um, you know, at that point I, I moved back to Boston and I, I did some comedy and I was in some sketch groups and then um, kind of committed that sketch was the thing that I really loved. Uh, let's go back. Is there any, who yeah. were your instructors at UCB? Oh God. Uh, the only one whose name I can remember. Um, there are two guys I can remember. Ari Vakadias was one. Um, Brian Husky was one of my teachers. Oh, that's cool. Um, I had this memory of, of John Glazer being one of my teachers, but somebody told me that he would never taught there. So I might've just, like he might just been at a show that I did. Um, other than that, honestly, my first the, the I spent two years in the in New York when I was twenty two, and just spent all my time smoking as much weed as possible. So my memories are a little hazier than they probably should be. I was really not ready for New York the first time I lived there. Yeah, and you're you're not at twenty two thing that someone's going to ask you that question on a yeah. podcast fifteen years later. So yeah. whatever. That's fine. But Brian Husky was was one I remember as being in, in if you go if, if you don't know who Brian Husky is, just Google him, you'll you'll recognize him. He was an awesome teacher. Yeah, yeah. He's he's one of those guys that like you might not know the name, but right. his face is everywhere because he's been in everything. Yeah. But I think John Glazer was the guy because I mean John Glazer can't be that much older than me, but he was one of the guys who was there when I when I was around UCB, just I was like, This guy is so funny and it took him so long to sort of get there. But I'm so happy he did because some of the stuff that I saw him in, he was in the single funniest improv show that I have ever seen in my life. And as somebody who doesn't really love improv, that's saying an awful <laughs> lot. It might have been one of the funniest comedy shows I've ever seen. Well, John Glazer, I think at that time would have, I think he was like writing on Conan or. Yeah, possibly. Because I know, I just watched that Dana Carvey show documentary and he was like yeah. a baby writer there. And yeah, he's great. 
Um, Glazer, yeah, Glazer was always, you know, I think it was a, it was an, it was one of the early ass cats that I saw him at with, it was him and Amy Poehler and Horatio Sands and some other dude who I don't remember his name. And they did this. I still like the fact that I remember an improv scene should say a lot, but he, he played this character who's a kid with Ocon, which was a disease where they gave him overconfidence. And there was this joke about him joining Metallica that was, I I would love to steal if I didn't didn't associate it so much with John Glazer. Uh, so I'm assuming real life sent, takes you back to Boston, like a real job mm-hmm. or something. Uh, so how do you get to the comedy uh, community there in Boston? So in I moved back to Boston, um, sort of dealing with the the fun part of of early twenties depression of not really knowing what I want to do. And, the, and when I moved to Boston, I sort of was looking around and a friend of mine um, from college told me about a theater there called the tribe, uh, which was running out of a strip club. Um, And they, I went and I did a a handful of shows there, mostly just sort of off brand improv shows. And I joined a short form improv group. So I should tell you how lost I was. Um, (laughs) And then the tribe ended up closing down and all the people from there moved over to, to a theater called improv Boston. Um, which uh, is still there, runs some comedy festivals and stuff that people might know. Um, and I started doing shows there. I joined one of their first sketch house teams um, run by a guy named Will Luera, who is a pretty well-known improv guy. Um, and then I actually stepped away from comedy for, for, for a few years because I was in a touring punk band, uh, which actually, to be honest, taught me more about how to do comedy than I think doing comedy up to that point had done. How do you mean? So, yeah, I'd always been one of those people who, who kind of wanted to do things, but never was able to sort of erase that line to just doing it, which I think is probably the most important line that any comedian who wants to create something has to erase for themselves. Um, I think it's easier now to some degree because mm-hmm. the Internet really allows you to do things in a, in a much more direct way than you used to have to do it. Um, but when I joined this punk band, you know, I'd, been playing in bands in high school and I did some in college, but had never really done it seriously. And I uh, had a, the bass player in our band had been in hardcore punk bands his entire life. Like he started when he was 13. So I had this, the sort of real epiphany moment for me. Honestly, is probably the reason I am where I am at this point is that we were going to go out on our first tour and I, I was like, okay, so what do we do? Do we have to hire a tour manager? Like, do we have to, like, how do you book things? Like, how do you make this happen? And my friend, Kevin, who was the bass player, he looked at me and he said, hey, man, you know, it's really complicated. So what you do is we're going we're gonna to send an email to a booker at, at a bar and we're going to say we would like to play a show there. And if they say yes, we're going to play a show there. And if they say no, we're going to send an email to another bar and, until we find a show. <laughs> and, it, and it dawned on me that really the the complicated part is not doing something it is realizing that you just have to ask yeah. and if you and if you ask and they say no then you either keep on asking or you just do it yourself and you know punk obviously has this this ethos which is the diy ethos and i think a lot of people get confused about it which is not it's not like doing something in an unprofessional way it's doing something in a professional way, but doing it yourself and not waiting for permission um, from other people to do it. And that's I really after I the music thing sort of, you know, I was in the band for five years. And after that, it sort of wound down. It empowered me to be able to go back to Improv Boston and go to the guy, um, Mike, Mike Dakota, who's their uh, artistic director there now and just go to him and say, hey, you know, this is my background. I love sketch. I've been doing it on and off for the last five years. Before that, I was very serious about it. And I have this background. I want to teach. I want to put this kind of show on. I want to build a main stage program. I want to do these things. And just going to him and being that person who's willing to do the extra 10% of work to make that kind of stuff happen, it instantly makes you a valuable human being. All right. So starting a program of sketch at Improv Boston. So what's your first step with that? Uh <laughs> well, the first thing is I, I basically went to him and I said, you know, um, I I forget which the first step was. I, I can't remember if it was teaching first or if I went to him about doing shows. But I think I went um, the first sort of big show that I put on 
in the first sort of sketch show that allowed me to start thinking on a grander scale was my friend Dennis Hurley, who's another comedian, came to me and he wanted to do he was looking for somebody to direct an improvised tribute to Weird Al Yankovic because it was the anniversary of the UHF movie, okay. which I'm sure you've seen. <laughs> Actually. Oh, really? Uh, I think I've, like if I've seen it, it I was too young. Yeah. So I need to revisit it. It's actually it's actually an extremely good movie. I'm I'm not a insane Weird Al guy, but I've always really loved UHF. Um, but it's basically it's a movie where you know it's a lot of Weird Al style parodies, and it's about him trying to save uh, a UHF station that is on Cologne's. So he came to me and he wanted to do an improvised tribute. And I, I, I personally don't love improvised tributes, so I said, okay, I'll do this, but I would like to create a show out of it. So I sat down and I wrote the entire thing. I cast it. I put everything together without really knowing what I was doing. Um, and it was a show that was extremely positive experience. Everybody in the, the cast in the show was one of those, those sort of eureka moments where everybody kind of bought into doing something, even though it was kind of stupid. <laughs> the show mm-hmm. itself went really, really well. And it was, it was just an experience that I had where – everything sort of fell into place of, of me realizing that it was something that I could do. So after that, you know, that was sort of right at the beginning of the, me being in the band. So I, you know, I'd spent a couple of years doing that and I went to, um, to Mike and I was just like, you know, here's, here's who I am. I don't think that there's enough sketch at improv Boston. Obviously it's more of an improv theater. Um, but, it, mm-hmm. but sketch I think is a, is a valuable part of any theater. And honestly, you know, I think it's probably the most, valuable part um especially if you're looking to do something as a career uh and he just he he was very gracious and just sort of you know especially because improv boss is much more of a community theater um you know it's it's a smaller city theater unlike new york which is much more about professionalization improv boston is about experimentation and allowing people to go and try something to get their own artistic fulfillment out of that so he allowed me leeway to be able to go in and sort of create things and okay. you know pushed me to do them in kind of a better way um how long are you in boston before you go back to new york well actually i've only been in new york for for uh, a little over a year so i lived in boston for an awfully long time i lived there for almost 10 years um oh, goodness yeah because i i think that my my sort of reintroduction back into doing comedy full-time was at around 2012 or 2013 um, and then I spent, I spent the next, uh, four something years, we built a couple of main stage shows, um, that, that run annually now, um, sort of based around the review style. Um, we built out, uh, the best of Boston sketch festival, which is something that runs every year there now. Um, and really, you know, I think it was a good time in Boston for sort of pushing the, the sketch ethos and the idea of how can you build a show that talks to a specific, a specific audience? Right. Cause I think that's a big part. in a lot of things, a lot of people sort of miss is the, the idea of doing something for its own sake is wonderful. I think that comedy is an art form. I think improv is an art form. I think sketch can be an art form, but if you don't know who your show is for, especially when you're doing as much work as you have to do for a sketch show, you're really doing yourself a disservice. So I would start, I, learned a lot of stuff by experimenting, by looking around and saying, okay, there's no sports shows in Boston. And I'm going to tell you something. Do you know what people in Boston love? <laughs> they love sports. <laughs> so I just, I, I built a show that I literally just called it sports, you know, and, yeah. the, and learning this stuff allowed me to, you know, when the job at the pit where I work now came up, I went to them and was like, look, this is what I did. I, I helped build this sketch program in Boston. We have these things, you know, these things that I either started or co-created that are running annually now. Um, and the pit was looking for somebody to basically come in and re reestablish the sketch program. Cause they had had sketch there before, but it had sort of fallen into disrepair a little bit. So I was basically hired without a job title to, to go in and, build you know i uh to sort of reestablish that part of the theater uh the pit their their sketch program was largely like at least to begin with was kevin allison Mm -hmm. taught there for a while and oh i'm gonna completely screw up his name (laughs) uh 
Ali. Oh yes. Fer- How do you say it? Like uh, he's yeah, the, he's actually owns the theater. His name's Ali Ali Paranakian. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so it is still his. Okay, it's still yeah, his project. He, yeah, he's he he owns the theater. Um, and he's actually been down mostly in North Carolina because of his starting a theater down there during my tenure. But he's been really invaluable in sort of helping me. And he, you know, he's been he was in the sketch scene for years and years and years and wrote for Saturday Night Live and did all this cool stuff. So, um, you know, Kevin Allison is actually I don't think I've actually ever met Kevin 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 Allison. Um. But, you know, they did have a sketch program there. And obviously they have the, the New York uh, Sketch Fest, which is something I run now. And they, it, there was a place for it. It just had been one of those things where they hadn't had somebody who had that real passion for mm-hmm. it for a while. Um, and it just allowed me to go in and just say, okay, how can we build this? How can I empower our artists to, to sort of put the real work that it takes to, to put sketch out? Um, and you know, honestly, it's, it's, for me, it's not necessarily any of my doing. It's just providing space for the people who have the talent. So tell me about the average week at the pit. Uh, how many, how many shows are you in charge of? How many shows are you putting on as like the scripted programming? Well, you know, it, the thing is that as it, our theater has three spaces, um, so, our, our theater is, is an interesting model because it's both it's it's both a place where you can really do experimental stuff or you can do those sort of general improv shows and learn your craft and do all that because we have somewhere between 10 to 16 shows every single night of the year. Um, we have a huge amount of, of need for, for artists. So for me, it's partially about, okay, giving this space to people who are going to try stuff out and, and then being able to focus on a few shows that are building something in that I can help on the production side. You know, it's about being open to artists who have ideas to come to me and say, this is my idea. This is who I think this is for. And a lot of my job is pushing them to either really tell me what their idea is, because a lot of times people will come in and they'll give me the idea they think I want to hear as opposed to the idea that they really care about. Um, And then figuring out, okay, how do we package this? How do we help you market it? How do we help you do the things that will lead you to be a working artist as opposed to somebody who just likes doing comedy? Um, So in terms of our average week, for me, it's a lot of different things. It's finding enough shows to fill our schedule. It's uh, figuring out who are the people who really care about this, who are really trying to push their art form for, forward and meeting with them and trying to help them figure that part out. Um, currently I am organizing two festivals. Uh, we have Sketchfest, which is coming up in October and we just opened up submissions for SoloCom, which is a festival where people do brand new solo shows. Um, so it's, it's pretty busy. <laughs> and we also started, I started a sketch house teams, uh, system, um, a little over a year ago and we're entering our third season. So I also, um, am doing, uh, setting up auditions and stuff for that. Uh, how many house teams are there currently? Well, we, in, for sketch, we have eight teams. Um, and for improv, I think there are 12, I want to say, um, but the sketch, the, I'm I'm not in charge of the improv team, so it's for the sketch that we have currently of eight. How regularly do they perform at Pitt? Like, what's the uh, so there, our house teams are on a four week cycle, so we we pair them up in two teams perform, and a team will perform every four weeks basically, and the seasons are about six months. Goodness. Um, so it's you know it's pretty regularly. When we, the first season we only had six teams, and honestly, that is not enough time. <laughs> mm. So there, so a house team's performing every week, like. Oh, is that yeah? Every Tuesday is our house. Okay, team. okay. Yeah. Oh goodness. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot, man. <laughs> you learn an awful lot running a running a, a comedy theater anywhere, but running one in New York, it's it's a, it's a crush. It's a lot of fun, but it's definitely a lot. Um, you run the festival. You're one. Of, you're a producer on the festival. I'm yep. one of the team here down in Philadelphia for our sketch festival. Uh, so yeah. I'm very curious about. What are you looking for when submissions come in? Like, is there an inside track? Is there a tip that you would give to someone that's submitting to uh, New York Sketch Festival? Um, I think it's it, for me, you know, we try to accommodate as many teams as possible. Um, you know, our, our, th- our festival is built around emerging 
um, people. We do have headliners and cool shows that are, are kind of, you know, the sort of sizzle on top of the steak. But for me, I really enjoy getting teams that are, this is the first time they've ever submitted to a festival um, or teams that um, have something new uh, to, to try. Um, I think a lot of, you know, in terms of looking for stuff, I get such a wide range of submissions. And I think that it's most, it's partially on me to sort of look past, okay, this group has an, a super professional reel or a super professionally made video sketch or this or that. And to be able to look through that and also see the, the groups that might just have an iPhone video, but are hilariously funny or new and have something new to offer the, the festival that I can bring in and maybe pair them up with a team that has more of a see uh, more of a seasoned team and, and get them some exposure. Um, you know, we're, we're, you know, as, as a theater, really our model is trying to push people to innovate and try new things and really figure out who they are. So if a group comes to me and even if they're new, if they have a sense of who they are as a group and what they're trying to do, that's, that's what I'm looking for. And like how many shows are going to be, how many shows are going to be a part of like, what's last the, year, it's, year it's a had, Thursday through Sunday, right? Yeah. Uh, last year we had 90 individual groups. Um, oh, yeah. And this time it's honestly, I, I'm going to, I, my goal is to, even if you are performing at noon on, on, on Sunday, my goal is to get everybody to be a part of the festival. I think that there's so much to learn being a new group coming in, even if your spot isn't great, uh, being able to come in and be around other sketch artists and see the headliners and see the people who are really doing it at a high level um, and to be around them and talk to them, you know, by, you know, having a beer with them. Cause there's the sort of ability to be able to walk up to somebody and say, Hey man, I love what you do. You know, and how, how do you do it? Or like, what are you like? How are your, what's your process is what I'm trying to get out of this festival. I think there's a level of, um, I think that still, you know, it's, it's definitely different with the internet, but I think the level of people feeling like there's some sort of secret to comedy is, is a damaging, a damaging thing for, for comedians. And so being open to allowing new people to come in and learn is really important to me and something I try to instill in the festival and our programming. Yeah. That was something that we were really trying to push for this year with like creating yeah. a community of people. Like we were, and, and I think we will for next year too, like actively yeah. encouraging, Hey, go out to meals together, go get a drink after let's, you know, yeah, for sure. let's not just be in the theater. Let's go and be a part of things. But now granted I did so much and I was so exhausted that I didn't really <laughs> get to enjoy half those things. But like, yeah, no, I know that feeling. <laughs> but I, I think that the idea of gatekeeping is something that is not, ever been my style again i think it partially goes back to me being in the punk scene and the idea of gatekeeping being a dirty a dirty word so um if we can you know and, and it's the, it's sort of two part for me is allowing people through the door but also having those expectations of hey now that you're in this door here are the expectations if you want to be good at this if you're living in new york doing comedy you probably have professional aspirations. If you're coming here to a festival to do this, or if you're coming into our theater, we want you here. We want what's special about you, but there's also going to be expectations that I'm going to say, Hey, this is what you need to do to actually make your show. Mm -hmm. Right. Here are the things that you need marketing wise. So removing that sort of veil of, of secrecy from comedy and just, you know, honestly at this point, anybody can do it. If you have the talent, it's just going to take that work. So that's, you know, that's, that's sort of my philosophy as much as, as, as sort of touchy feely and football coachy as it might be. That's always sort of how I've, I've looked at it. And besides anyone can do it, even if you don't have the talent, like, yeah, <laughs> like, um, I mean, you can definitely do it if you don't have the talent, this is going to take a little bit more work. Yeah. Or even <laughs> not just like, I'm sure yeah, I, I've seen sure. some shows where I'm just like, you guys aren't even trying. Like, come on. <laughs> I mean, me too. When I moved to New York, I'm like, oh man, everybody's going to be so good at everything. And then I got here. <laughs> oh no. Every, there's most of a lot of these people still don't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> still, they, still well, at a certain level. Uh, New York, just by like extrapolating out the population, you just, you right. might you have even more people that aren't trying as hard or like, sure. uh, okay. So I ask people two questions every time as we wrap up. Um, okay. Uh, but edifying first question is uh, 
And you've mentioned a few things throughout this conversation, but what is a piece of advice, a piece of wisdom that you would give to a new sketch comedy writer? Yeah, um, I think for a new sketch comedy writer, I you know, like I said, I'm I'm a teacher, so it's something that I always tell people when they first start is just finish the sketch. I think a lot of people get bogged down by writing a joke that they think is not funny and then gets getting stuck on that joke. Just get to the end. No first draft is ever your last draft. So when you start something, just finish it, get all the way through, get to that end line, and then go back and fix it after that. In terms of people who are attempting to build shows or to start groups or to do something a little bit more serious in comedy, always ask yourself why you're doing it. If you're going to make a video, why? Who is it for? If you're going to spend money on anything, always know why you are going to do it. I think a lot of times people just make stuff to make stuff. And if the idea is to make something good that other people are going to want to watch on the Internet, which is a glut of content, (laughs) always ask yourself why. Who's it for? Mm -hmm. Who is the audience I'm trying to appeal to with this? It doesn't mean that you have to pigeonhole yourself. But what it does mean is if you know who it is that your show or your sketch is going to appeal to, it will allow you to focus. Um, And then, you know, the other part is if you're going to do something, make sure you are doing it to the best of your ability. Do not, you know, spreading yourself too thin. This bites me in the ass sometimes because then I lose people who want to make sure they're focusing on something they really care about. But if you're going to do a project, do it all the way. And I think that a lot of comedians, and I, I was guilty of this myself, will commit to as many projects as people ask them to do and then do everything half-assed. So if you're going to do something, if you're going to be in a group or you're going to do a show, do that. Um, I have a two-project rule for myself. I can focus on two things at one time and then past that I'm stretched too thin. So I will usually be in a group and then do one other project. Um, that, you know, that's not for everybody, but that's just my general rule. Are you currently performing as much as you'd want to or? Not even remotely, no. <laughs> you know, I, 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 in Boston, I, I had a day job and I, while also sort of working for the theater and teaching and, and directing and producing. Um, so I was probably working 70 hours a week, but 35% of that was a brainless job that I didn't care about. Mm. Um, by sort of, you know, sinking into this role as an artistic director and a producer at the theater, it's really up to this point really been me sort of helping other people figure out their shows or their dreams. So I'm, I, I actually made a goal for myself uh, last month to start sort of figuring out the, my artistic stuff, my performances, that kind of stuff. So it's definitely, you can lose that sometimes <laughs> you get to it, you get an artistic I, job. No, absolutely. Just, like, yeah, this is, this is great. I'm doing this artistic thing all day and then it gets to be six o'clock and you just don't want to think about comedy anymore. Like this isn't even a full-time thing, but between, I mean, a full-time job for me, but between uh, being a producer on our festival and doing this podcast, I haven't done anything on stage as much as I wanted to, to the point where I've had, I put myself a goal of doing, getting a, well, I'm going to get a slot at the sketch fest if I want it, but like to have a show at next year's Philly sketch fest, like ready to go for myself, like. Yeah, and, I, and that's that. I mean, that's that's one other rule that I can, or one other sort of piece of advice I can give to to people who are listening to this, who are, who are looking for it, is always book the show, even if you're not ready. Give yourself a month and a half, but book the show because comedians by by definition are lazy human beings, and if you don't book the show, you're never going to make it. So mm. you know, even if you don't feel like you're ready or your group isn't ready, book that show. Give- tell everybody else what the expectations are, and if they're not willing to buy in, then say. I still love you and move on to the next person. Yeah. That sounds, yeah. Yeah. Give yourself some time to get ready and then get ready. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, And then finally, I mean, you just mentioned that you're not performing as much as you want to, and you're doing way more producing and mentoring and teaching, but why do you do it? Why is this how you've chosen to live your life to spend your time? Uh, You know, I, I think partially it's because I'm good at it. Um, I think that I figured out that, helping people and producing and, you know, honestly managing to some degree is something that I'm, I'm good at. I'm good at, at 
pushing people to do the things that they really want to do. I'm good at sort of pointing out the professionalization of things to people. Um, and that's sort of being the kind of Pied Piper person. It was not anything that I ever really thought that I was going to be. But when I started doing it, I realized that being that person who's willing to do that extra 10% just came naturally to me. And I got to put things together that I wanted to see. And so for me, you know, coming into the theater and sort of trying to either build things from scratch or to sort of elevate certain other certain things, um, being able to look at somebody or a project or a show or hear an idea that I personally want to see on stage or on TV, that's being able to help do that is, is probably the favorite, my favorite part of the job. It's, you know, it doesn't necessarily scratch the artistic uh, ish all the time. But it fulfills me in a, in a different way. All right. That sounds good. I like that. Yeah. It, there, <laughs> like I said, there's a lot of there are bad days and good days, but the good days are, you know, I, I worked at Starbucks for 10 years because I got health insurance. <laughs> every every day I'm, I'm a full-time artistic director is, is better than my best day at Starbucks. All right. Thanks, Alan. No, no problem, man. Thank you so much for having me. You can still submit to NYC Sketchfest 2018 at the Pit until September 7th if you go to the pit-nyc.com. The festival itself is presented by True TV and the Village Voice and will run from October 18th through the 21st. You can find out more information, including the lineups next week and all everything else, at the pit-nyc.com. My first sketch is a Philly Sketchfest production. You can find out more information at phillysketchfest.com or on Twitter at phlsketchfest. The music on this episode is by the band Nono, which you can check out at nonoband.bandcamp.com. Like my first sketch on Facebook. This is Josh Hyam. Thanks for listening. Go see some comedy. <laughs>